Hey, hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of All The Places We Will Go Show. Look, we are here every Friday morning at 8 a.m. talking to a very special guest, um, talking about life's undulations, the, the ups and downs, the rounds and rounds that lead to eventual success. Now, every now and again, I get the pleasure of meeting somebody truly remarkable. And I know that remarkable is a big word, but it really does sum up Andrew Block in so many ways. In fact, I think he's the ideal role model for many of us watching the show here today. He is a remarkably good entrepreneur, having founded one of the most renowned PR agencies in the country, Frank, in 2000. He is a remarkable individual for becoming one of the UK's leading entrepreneurs. He's remarkable for the trust that many of his clients, including Sir Alan Sugar, have in him to deliver in every situation. And he's remarkable for his ability and passion to want to give back through the work that he does at the Prince's Trust. Now, he recently stepped down after 20 years at the helm of Frank to go on to do a variety of different non-executive consultancy roles. And on a personal note, I actually think he wins the world championship in being the quickest man to respond to emails and messages. So there you go, Andrew, that's your claim to fame above everything else. Um, and he's also super generous with his time. And he's kindly going to donate a mentoring session to one lucky person on the show today. Now, to be honest with you, and truth be told, I would love to win that mentoring session myself, um, but I suspect it's a little bit against the rules. So I'm gonna play on the ethical side and cut myself out. Um, but all of you who've been on the show before know what you need to do. So as the show is going on, you need to post your favorite quote of Andrew, post it on LinkedIn, and then Jordan will announce the winner next week. So Andrew, look, it's absolutely fabulous to have you on the show this morning. Um, and I'm gonna pass over to Mark for, for the first question. Thanks, thanks Richie, and, and welcome Andrew. Uh, before I start, let me tell you, that is high praise for no other than, none other than Richie Meta to say that somebody else is the fastest at responding in the world to emails because I had you up on that pedestal, Richie, to be honest. But um, anyway, fantastic to have you, Andrew. Um, now let's, let's dive straight in. So ultimately, you kind of left your baby of 20 years in the making uh, at a pretty unprecedented moment in the world. So how, how does that feel? I, I did, yeah. Well, listen, thank you. First of all, what a remarkable introduction. <laughs> it's like listening about someone else, but thank you. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, I have left my baby. I, ha I haven't completely left my baby. I've stepped down and gone into a non-executive role. So I'm still attached to my baby, but for sure it was, you know, sounds cliched, but really was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. But Frank was um, 
20 years in, in a great place with a great team running stuff, doing great work. And it, something inside me just sort of felt the time was right. It wasn't an overnight decision. It's something that we've been planning for a couple of years. Um, and we sort of agreed the finer details at the beginning of the year. Little did we know that we were about to be hit by a pandemic. So I found myself sort of stepping back right in the midst of chaos. And I think I had a mixture of sort of, I don't know, fear, excitement, the unknown. I hadn't really, I made a conscious decision. What I would do is just sort of tell people that I was stepping back and then see what, what would happen. And I, I hadn't put a plan in place. I'd thought through what I didn't want to do, but I hadn't really considered exactly what I did want to do. And then, I don't know, this amazing thing happened. The phone just started ringing and I was getting emails and messages and all these sort of interesting and exciting opportunities started to come my way. And then now I'm, I don't know, three and a half, four months into that journey and I've just built this great portfolio of interesting things. It, it wasn't, I don't know what I imagined really. It's a bit like when 20 years ago starting Frank, I never really thought forward as to what it could be. I sort of more, I don't know if it's the way my, my brain works, my mind works, but I kind of thought of what could go wrong and how I'd deal with it if it went wrong. But I didn't really think about what could go right. And I, I think I've found myself in a sort of similar position as I'm sitting here today. Unfortunately, things so far so good. So. Andrew, um, so you're opting now for a pluralist career. A multitude of different things going on. But look, let me, let me take you back 20, 22 years, I guess, um, from, from, from the time when you started and founded Frank. 20 years, yeah, 20 years. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that decision, why you did that, um, some of the motivations behind it? I mean, I was relatively young in my PR career. I was five years in. Um, the MD of the agency that I first started working in, Lynn Frank's PR, sort of came to me. We'd, we'd sort of parted ways work-wise, but had remained in touch and said, look, let's set up a PR agency. Um, I said, no, don't think I'm ready. You know, like I could do with a few more years under my belt. He, you know, quite wisely said to me, you know, you'll never feel ready. Let's just do it. And we did it. And have never really looked back. And I think, you know, people say to me now, wow, you were so young, it was such a brave thing to do. And it wasn't really because I didn't have a great deal to lose. And as I said previously, you know, the way my mind worked is I just thought through, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I'll give it a go, doesn't work out. I'll sort of go back with cap in hand to my old company or get my CV out there and I'll find another job. And that was my thought process. I never, really sort of planned for where it could go. And I look back, sort of sat here today, and you just think, wow, now I'm proud of it. But uh, at the time, it wasn't a big decision. Yes, I had an MD on my business card, it felt pretty cool, but I was MD of no one. You know, it wasn't exactly the greatest role in the world. We had no clients, no business, no staff. You know, it, it really wasn't a great empire. It was just the beginnings of what was to become something that was much bigger. 
And Andrew, in the, the few minutes we've had already, what shines through is you do have a sense of adventure and you have an inherent optimism. Uh, I'm really interested to know if you can put your finger on where you think those things come from. I, I mean, I don't actually class myself as someone who is particularly sort of brave. I think I'm quite risk adverse, very measured in the, in the way I think. But I'm also someone who... I, I, I mean, I, I genuinely love what I do and I have a passion for the work that I'm doing. And I don't think you can sort of artificially create that or force it. It's just something I just enjoy. I mean, it, it's just something that I love doing. And with that, I, I think opportunities tend to come your way. And it's more a case of, I just want to try new things and and have a go and see where I can add value and what I'm able to achieve. I don't know whether it's optimism or stupidity, naivety, um, but you know, if you don't try something, uh, there is a quote somewhere about, you know, you, you fail 100% of things you don't attempt, or I paraphrase that, but something along those lines. So, you know, if there is something that I'm interested, an opportunity comes my way, I think it's good. Yes, I'll go through a sort of process of, you know, is this worth doing? Can I do it? Blah, blah, blah. But I'll give it a go if I think I can, can add value. I think I've got a confidence in my own ability. And having now done this for, for a fairly long time, you tend to have a sort of gut instinct that is not always right. But on the whole, you know, if, if I have a belief in something, you know, it's the same as any campaign we create i'm sure it's like with you mark you know when you're putting out a new ad campaign or something you have the experience to have that gut feel this is good this is going to make a difference you don't know that 100 percent, but i think experience gives you that optimism it's not like you're some sort of complete idiot that is just thinks everything's going to be great with no validation or rhyme or reason i, I think that's the case I Andrew, you, um, you, I want to pick up on something you said about, you know, your MD title back in the early days um, and, and, and the MP, you know, MD of, an, of, of what empire. But particularly speaking, how long do you think it took to scale up Frank to a point where you were kind of going, wow, because I mean, clearly today it's, it's in a different realm. But I mean, how many years did it take to even get to a point where you kind of felt like this is becoming substantive and, and scaling and you felt there was a, a good business model behind it? It's a good question. I mean, I've never been one to sort of sit back and reflect and get too overexcited about things. And I think one of the things about running an agency is there is a hell of a lot of ups and downs. I mean, it's, it's a roller coaster, and anyone who tells you differently, quite frankly, is lying. Um, so I've never really got too excited about the highs. And I've always been someone that sort of pushes myself to the next level, the next level, the next level. Because you don't want to be complacent. And I think running an agency, the day you stand still is the day you're going backwards. Um, but there were moments, you know, there were moments. On our first birthday, we won the Brewcream account, which was a really iconic mass household brand and we'd beaten a few really big agencies to win that business and that was a pretty defining moment for us you know I, I thought wow you know we can do this we can beat the best established agencies out there and then 
you know, over the years there were you know, the awards you win, which I never, you know, reflect too much on, but they're nice. You know, we won, I think, Marketing Agency of the Year in 2006, I think it was. And that was an award that you didn't enter. It was judged by your peers, by media experts. So that was nice. Um, and then, you know, I think maybe some of the campaigns, you know, you find yourself doing these things I remember sort of launching Call of Duty and it was the biggest entertainment launch in history. And we were launching that across, I don't know, 17 countries simultaneously. And I, I do remember a moment we were stood outside Battersea Power Station and we had kind of stormtroopers flying down the sort of chimneys of Battersea and projections in the air. And there was, you know, red carpet, the world's media literally was streaming it. BBC were going live, and I was like, "Bloody hell! Like, we've done this." I mean, it's it, like you sort of pinch yourself. Like, here's me, like the kid that grew up playing computer games, with my own kids that are obsessed by computer games, and I'm sat here launching the biggest game, biggest entertainment launch in history. Like, there are those sort of moments. Um, and, you know, now I look back at some of the campaigns and whenever someone says to me, oh, I remember that, or that's great, or when I do something now and my mum says, oh, I saw that, or have you seen that in the paper is normally what she says to me. I'm like, yes, I've been working on that. But, um, you know, that's cool. And I still get a buzz from that. I think, you know, you've got to love what, what you do and get a satisfaction out of the results. And, you know, I get that to this day. And actually now I've sort of stepped away from the day-to-day -day running of Frank and, and I'm sort of doing some of my own stuff, I'm almost getting that thrill all over again because I, I don't know, I, I guess I proved to myself I can still do the actual work as well as direct other people to do the work, which is, you know, a nice feeling. I love the trade and the craft of, of what we do and the coming up with the ideas and then seeing that through to fruition and, and reality. So I, I'd not made the link before, but I do now actually hold you partially responsible for my, my son's gaming. I don't know if I call it a problem or whatever, but uh, so, so thanks. Um, but uh, you, you described a roller coaster and then you talked a lot about some of the, the highlights and the, the awards and so on. Um, obviously on a roller coaster, there's the downs as well. So what have been some of the, 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 the trickier spots and how have you found the resolve to navigate through them? I mean, there's... There's the day-to-day -day trickiness, and when you work in a client business, clients are hard work, I'm afraid to say, sometimes. And you have the disappointed clients, you have the campaigns that didn't go as well as you want, you have the pitch losses, which, you know, is always hard when you put a lot of time and energy into something. Um, but you kind of ride through those because you, you, know, you know that that will go and something good will come. I think probably you know, one of the hardest periods at Frank was we had, I think, 11 or 12 years of constant growth year on year, you know, really fast and impressive growth and almost, I guess, took it, took it for granted in a way that you were just going to keep on growing. And then it started to sort of slow down and, and flatten sort of year 13, year 14. I mean, fortunately, we didn't ever go into a sort of massive roller coaster style dip, but you know, that growth slowed and, and steadied, and, and that was tough. You're like, 
shit, you know, we don't grow every year by magic, you know, this, and, and we, I don't know, without being too dramatic about it, you know, dug deep and thought, okay, well, well, we don't want to be in an agency that's not growing. It's boring. It's like you can't hire people. You can't get the best people. You can't win the best clients. So we really, I wouldn't call it any sort of pivot. I think that's probably a bit too dramatic a term, but it forced us to realize, you know, what makes an agency great. And I think the hardest thing about running an agency, whether it's PR, ad, media, whatever, is being relevant and doing great work. And I think, you know, if I reflect back on that sort of period where we flattened, the work wasn't as good as it once was. It, it wasn't terrible. It, you know, I, I would never sort of produce terrible work, but it, what we weren't at our best. And we really just sort of, I guess, got together and like, come on guys, let's sort this out. And we really focused on, let's make our campaigns as brilliant as they can be. Let's just dig that bit harder when we're pitching for a client and win the best clients. And, and we came out of it. Um, but it was, you know, it was a bit of a wake up call. And, you know, you do see fantastic agencies rise and fall. And it's just sort of the nature of, I think, the marketing services world where people can get a little bit starstruck by the new cool startups and yeah when you're a small agency and you're starting you've got that energy that buzz you're the cool kid on the block the hardest thing about scaling up and growing is keeping all the things that made you brilliant when you started that sort of freshness the coolness the excitement and not falling into the trap of just because you're big behaving like you're big and you know we started to think of frank as you know, a, a kind of, I don't know, like almost a small agency that just happened to get big, but, you know, trying to keep that boutique, not just feeling to the outside world, but total behavior in terms of how we acted, not becoming too corporate, not having too many internal meetings and processes and structures. You know, you want to keep that entrepreneurial flair and vibe to, to the agency. And I, I think that's what sort of pulled us out of it. We sort of got a bit too grown up and sensible. And, you know, that's not why people hired us. It's not why people liked us. And then once we realized that and started sort of, I guess, going back to being small, you know, that's, I looked a lot, um, yeah, there's, I, there's lots of great brands out there, but one of the brands that, you know, I've always admired is, is Innocent. And they talk um, about, being professionally unprofessional. And I thought a lot about that and I love that. And you know, the way that I've interpreted that is you have to sort of always feel fluid spur of the moment. These are just ideas that you've almost sort of had in the shower, phoned your agency, got out within 20 minutes of thinking of it. But actually they're completely thought through, well-formed, brilliant marketing campaigns and we tried with Frank you know to make our approach to a lot of the campaigns we were doing and the way we sort of package the agency to have that professionally unprofessional feel where people just look at it and they think I guess you know wish I thought of that is the reaction you want from other agencies and clients and marketers and 
there's a real skill to, to that. You can't be sort of unprofessionally unprofessional. You have to, you know, especially when you're doing campaigns that are quite edgy or have an element of, of risk or controversy to them, you always have to think through the downsides, what could go wrong, what's the risk, and plan for that carefully. And then you just go for it. And you've always got to be brave in the way you do stuff. And I think that, that applies both to clients, but also to agencies and how they market themselves and build themselves as, as brands in their own right. Andrew, I, I love the, um, you know, the analogy around, I wish I'd thought of that. Because I think that's that's a great sort of benchmark to have when when considering launching campaigns and and your your words around taking those risks and being brave, you know, surely are the cornerstone of both client and agency life. You know, in in, in our marketing world, and that, that really resonates with me. Um, I have to ask though, um, you've literally had some of the most iconic, both corporate clients and personal, I guess personal branded clients as well. I mean, Sir Alan Sugar is a great example of that. Um, can you give us some insight? Well, one, actually, what is it like to work with him? Because that's brilliant. And I'm and, and, and thinking about that. But then two, I mean, how do you, how do you come at um, new client development? I mean, how were you able to build this empire of great clients? Is there any tips and guidance you could, you could share with us? Um, that's a great question. I think, I don't know. In some ways, you know, the new business strategy of Frank was born out of, the fear of having to pick up the phone and cold call and sort of sell yourself. And I sort of realized not just me, but you know, others within the agency that obviously the best way to win clients is for them to see what you're doing. And this will sound super simplistic, but it's true. If you do great work, everything follows from that. You know, you do great work, people see it, clients see it, they want to work with you people want to work with you because they want to be doing that sort of work and you attract the best people. Um, and so really what drove the new business and, and won the clients and continues to win the clients is doing good work. And I think the day you stop doing great work is the day you stop becoming a great agency. And, you know, an agency... One of the, there is no shortage of, of agencies in this world, you know, there's, there's a lot of them. I mean, I, I don't think it's unfair to say there's, a, there's probably an oversupply of agencies. So the key is, why are you different to anyone else? What is your point of difference? And why would a client want to work with you? And I, I believe you have to stand for something. That point of difference has to be true you can't kind of make it up um and you have to stick by that you shouldn't be all things to all people and with frank we've always tried to maintain a strong brand culture um we've always positioned ourselves or we just are you know a creative agency and then we really focused around the ethos of talkability and the principle that if you can get other people talking about your campaigns, that is your best form of marketing. And worked very, very hard to not just do PR or comms campaigns for the sake of it. And, you know, there is a lot of communication out there that is just noise. And, you know, especially in today's digital age, getting an audience isn't difficult. You can reach people in seconds. You can hit them by 
you know, a thousand different forms of marketing, media, advertising, whatever you want to do. The hard bit is the fight for attention and getting people to sit up and take notice and engage. So we always tried to push clients to sort of think about campaigns that are going to make a difference and that are going to resonate and to try and, I don't know, maybe disrupt conventions a little bit. And that's what we've always fought hard to stand for. You know, I think it's very easy to fall into a trap when you run an agency of just taking a brief, taking it literally, giving a client what they want. And a great agency will try and challenge the client. And, you know, if they don't believe that is the right solution um, so that they can produce the right work. And I think, you know, actually a great agency needs great clients. And you have to be prepared to walk away from opportunities that don't feel right or you don't think are going to deliver the results, um, which I think we've you know, done naturally over the years. I think by having a strong brand, you tend to attract clients that think like you and like you and, and very cheesy, but sort of work as partners together with you as opposed to sort of treating you like a supplier. And you naturally deflect the ones that aren't going to allow you to do the best work and, and be true to yourselves. So, Andrew, you're saying that Sir Alan Sugar is just like you, or you're just like him? Is that is that? Um, I don't know which of us would be more horrified to hear me agree to that. I mean, we're 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 similar in lots of ways. I mean, funnily enough, what you said to me right at the beginning about sort of being quick to reply to emails and response, I think I've learned that from him. I mean, potentially it's sort of one of my natural traits anyway, but. You know, he's someone that is super busy, runs, you know, dozens of businesses, um, but also kind of has got to a stage in life where he can enjoy life and sit on a yacht, fly his own planes, etc. But I know if I send him an email, WhatsApp, whatever it might be, he will respond to me. I mean, normally immediately, but I worry when I haven't had a reply within an hour or so. Like, and efficiency is super important to him you know he does not want someone that he has to chase that he has to wait for and i've got used to that over time but i think that's sort of how i am you know for me the real basics of client servicing is being responsive and getting back and managing expectations and not allowing people to become frustrated or to worry like is something in hand you know and his you know, that, that, I'm very much like that. It's just part of my makeup. But I know him and he wouldn't tolerate someone that kind of doesn't get back quickly or isn't on top of the detail or doesn't remember something. But, you know, we're, so we're similar in that respect. We're different in lots of other respects. But when you've worked with someone for a long period of time, and I've, I've worked with them for, for nearly 20 years, you know, you just know a client inside out and and how to keep them happy, basically. I and mean, that's the basics of client servicing. He's no different to any other client in that respect. Yeah, we can all learn a bit from that in terms of immediacy. It shows that you care as much as anything. Um, right. you, you, you talked a little bit about, uh, there's now hundreds of ways to hit consumers, but it's about getting, getting the cut through. You, you, you know, you and I predate the world of social media. Uh, so so how, how do you, 
sum up in, in your mind how the landscape has changed with the advent of digitization and social media? What's been the impact of the way you run an agency and the way you think about the world? Yeah, I mean, the, the world I started in, like you, was, you know, makes me feel prehistoric. But, you know, when, just to put it into context, you know, when I started out in PR, the internet wasn't really there. It took, a, I think, when I was about a year into the working life, we got one email address for the entire company. You know, any sort of photography or was biked out on transparencies by couriers. You had to fax press releases to news desks. And then, you know, it's, the world has transformed since then. And obviously the ad advent of the internet, social media, the principles of what we do are absolutely no different. Um, for me, the digital sort of revolution has made, the, made it more exciting. You know, the immediacy of, the thing I always loved about PR on day one was the fact, you know, you could have a campaign, an idea, and the next day, you know, it would be in the newspapers or, or on the news. And I was always that kind of loser that was, I couldn't wait for the next morning. I'd be at King's Cross when the papers would come out at 11 at night, so I could see it sort of a few hours earlier. But, um, and now that immediacy is, you know, you can have a campaign and it's out in seconds and that's really powerful um, and really exciting and I look back at some of the early Frank campaigns and I think oh, I wish Twitter was invented you know when we did that campaign because the spread of it would have just been immense especially some of that gaming stuff but some of our more sort of controversial or tongue-in-cheek or provocative campaigns would have been just unbelievable in the social media era um, but I do think it's also in some ways, I think because there are channels there and brands can own their own channels, I don't know about laziness, but it's sort of, I always think you know, just because a digital channel is there and you have the ability to post, to tweet, to, doesn't mean you have to do it. And you certainly shouldn't be doing it for the sake of it and any old crap, you know, it's, so I don't know whether it's sort of made marketers lazier. You know, you can buy idols very, very easily if you wanted to reach a million people by tomorrow. Of course you can do that. But I hate the fact that that can potentially lead to a sort of laziness of creativity. And to me, the sort of best campaigns are truly integrated and, and use a sort of combination of earned and paid and the, the various different channels and actually what the sort of storytelling bit of it does is just snowball that effect and build the return on investment and make stuff work harder and certainly I'm not like an advocate of not using paid channels because actually the greatest campaigns are, are where everything sort of works together to just make the message travel further, work harder, build more awareness. Um, so you know look it's I think when you work in the industry that we work in, you have to have an appetite for understanding new technology to learning it. And I, and I learn all, all the time, you know, it's constantly being schooled about, you know, whether it's programmatic advertising or wh whatever it might be, all these things that, you know, for me were just sort of terms that I didn't really comprehend a few years ago, or maybe they're things that didn't even exist a few years ago. You have to understand the latest technology, the latest ways um, you can do things. And I think it inspires creativity because 
you can now do different stuff and you know new channels emerging all the time new techniques new disciplines and i love working with sort of the data geeks and the number people and then sort of combining that sort of art and science i guess it is to, to really create the magic of a, a brilliant campaign Andrew, I think I think uh, you know that that's a great that's a great summary of some of the key future trends that are taking place as well. Um, just a quick reminder, everyone: do post your favorite quote of Andrew onto LinkedIn for a chance to get a mentoring session with him. And um, it's a bit of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to be honest with you. And and I'm probably going to do one myself, but nevertheless, um, I've got a great question from Chirag, who works at Mars. Um, so, Andrew, um, what are the principles checklist to achieve a great PR campaign? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a checklist. I think, for me, you should never be doing PR for the sake of doing PR. It's always got to link back to your business objectives. So whether that is building awareness, changing perceptions, selling more product, that's what it has to come back to. And then you sort of look at that objective and work towards how you're going to achieve that and your checklist really should be you know is this campaign going to lead to this um and then you know on, on top of that is, is it is not just is it going to achieve you know the business objectives but is it going to make a difference to maybe some of the sort of softer measures is it going to make people smile is it going to make people feel warmer about my brand is it going to increase our share of voice against competitors is it going to make a true difference is it going to have an impact um so i think you know every checklist is is different in terms of the principles i mean I, maybe it's about is this a campaign we're proud to put our name to you know or is it just a piece of shitty work that isn't going to make a difference and not make you know just you never want to waste the client's money. You always want to do something that's going to make them happy, make them proud, make a difference to their business. And ultimately, you know, going back to what you were saying about how do you build an agency? Well, you build the agency by, yes, by doing the great work, but then, you know, that, that great work leads to organic growth because you work within the business and then they give you more briefs, they open it up to different brands and then those people that work within that organization inevitably move on to different organizations. So I always like to think, you know, is this piece of work gonna get me hired again? Is it gonna give us our next job? And the, the, you know, most agencies have a mix of sort of project and retained clients. And as we're sort of, you know, doing more and more projects for clients, it's, it's kind of hard work, it's fun, but you know, you put all this energy in and then it stops. You want to know that that campaign's going to lead to the next project or, you know, the client thinks you're so indispensable that they want you on retainer 24 seven because they can't do without you. So those are some of the things that go through my head. But ultimately, is this campaign going to achieve the objectives? And sometimes you have to help a client define what those objectives are because they don't necessarily or challenge those objectives. Um, but I love the best campaigns, just sorry, I'm just... It's a good question, so it's just thinking through. But if, if you can demonstrate return on investment, ultimately that's what you have to be trying to do, especially in a world of 
data and numbers where you have you know performance marketing agencies that can be very analytical in terms of spend this get this pr especially needs to step up and show we're not just that sort of fluffy nice feeling bit that if it makes a difference great if it doesn't oh well it's only like five percent of our marketing pot bullshit you know like pr can measure it can make the difference and it can make an exponential difference to what a numbers agency can do but you have to be able to prove that and your checklist needs to define how you're going to do that i, I agree with that thought that pr as a medium has the potential for, to hit the jackpot in a way that others a bit more mechanistic and, and calm now Andrew, you don't get to achieve everything you've achieved without being pretty good at networking sometimes Networking is seen as something quite intimidating or a bit of a dirty word, but it's important, right? So what, what's, what would be your advice to everyone watching in terms of how to be an effective networker? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I'm a good and a terrible networker. So you won't find me at a sort of cheese and wine party with a name badge saying, hi, I'm Andrew. Like, no, thank you. But I think I almost, I think I network almost by accident. Um, in the, I don't go out my way to meet people, but I'll give time to everyone, and if I can, and by sort of, I guess, doing things like this, and you know, there will be people that will look at this and think, "What a dick! I never want to work with him." And there might be people that think, "Ah, oh, you know, he could maybe help me." That's my type of networking, and if people think I'm a dick sorry and if they think they'd like to work with me great send me an email you know drop me a message on linkedin you, that's how to network and i think if you i've always believed that you should give time to people if you can and if people ask you for advice or help or want a contact it doesn't take a great deal of your time to do it of course it's easier just to say no or ignore them but you never know what kind of comes back. I don't want to come across as some sort of hippie, but I do believe in, in karma. And if you put out the right energy and you help people and you do favors for people and you don't expect anything in return, which I never would, that it does sort of come back to reward you. And of course, you know, the best way to network is just by showcasing what you're up to and what you're doing it's sort of i don't know if that is networking or if that is marketing but i've always found the most effective form of networking for me is just sharing campaigns that either i've done personally or frank have done or or actually sharing other people's work can be a good form of you know i think if you're generous in your praise with others especially when it's genuine which it always would be with me i never so say something good if I didn't think it was it, it kind of you know it all comes around and we work in a small industry and I think like-minded people tend to just gravitate towards similar people and that, that's been my sort of style of networking over the years it's not a typical form of networking I hate that sort of networking clubs or forced sort of friendships it's, it's just not my type of thing but I do it in my own way, which I think is really just in intuitive and not planned and not contrived. It's, it's just how I operate as a person. And it, it's kind of worked for me in that it's enabled me to build connections with people that are similar.
to me. You know, the cheese and wine crowd will always sort of gravitate towards one another and that's fine. I'm not knocking it. It's very valid. It's just not for me personally. And people who are more like me that, I don't know, hide behind Twitter or LinkedIn or <laughs> find each other that way. So it's just how it's worked. Andrew, it's, uh, to be honest, it's, you know, what you've said has come across in spades to me over the last couple of weeks, getting to know you better. And I can totally resonate with, you know, with, with the sentiment there. And I love, I love the thought when you said, um, you know, is it networking or is it marketing? And I kind of think what a lovely, you know, what a lovely sort of um, blurring of the lines between, between those two things that I hadn't given much thought to before. So it's a, it's a great insight there. Um, I know we're running out of time. I just want to take one question from Raju. Um, so he asks, um, today, a troll or a negative post can potentially damage a brand. Thus, ORM, not quite sure what ORM is, maybe you do, plays a key role. How does one ring fence a brand from a PR perspective? Um, you know, what social media has done is it's given brands and consumers the opportunity to interact directly. And... Sure, one tweet can damage a brand, but one tweet can also make a brand. And I think, you know, social media has opened up a real opportunity for PR agencies because the way that a PR person thinks is intuitively storytelling and building connections and, and earning respect. Um, and in my opinion, you know, brands shouldn't shy away from social media for fear of the troll. And, you know, a lot of it is, is pretty meaningless. Yes, there are examples of brands that have had big reputational damage, you know, via stupidity or poorly thought through messaging. Um, but at the same time, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of brands that have built themselves and, and have built their businesses through social media. And, to me, you know, the ability to be able to interact directly with consumers is, is a really, really powerful thing. And, I, you know, sometimes you sit as, a, as, a, as an agency and you've created these great campaigns, built this brand, made people smile, made people think favorably about your brand. And then, you know, as a consumer, I'm sat there, you know, phoning my mobile service operator or my utilities company or my insurance company. And the experience I get is so different on the phone or on social media when I'm not responded to or whatever it might be. And you think, such a shame, you're putting all these millions into marketing and then you're letting yourself down in terms of your consumer interaction. And actually the two things can work together. But there is a role for PR agencies to be the guardians of that interaction and to use it. You know, there's lots of examples of brands that do it extremely, extremely well. And I think the best brands are wising up to the power of that interaction and how to use social media in a clever way to, and sure there's risks, but there's risks with every marketing campaign you do. And like any other form of marketing, you have to think through the pitfalls of what you're doing, the downsides of what could go wrong and how you'd mitigate for it in that instance. And look, we're in a society of, snowflakes where you sometimes can't do right for doing wrong or can't do wrong for doing right whatever way you want to look at it and but you know you shouldn't be paralyzed by fear sometimes you need to have an element of 
bravery. Otherwise, you just get paralyzed and frozen and don't do anything. And doing nothing is the worst thing you can do as a brand. Don't know if that answers that or not, but hopefully. Mark, you're on mute. Um, well, I was going to say, what a, what a great way to end, actually. Unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, but a fantastic note to end on in terms of that element of bravery. So, Andrew, I'd like to thank you for your insights around PR and marketing and brands and media, of course, but also the extra layers that I think you brought with some wonderful insights. And if I just play back my takeaways, very much that spirit of have a go, which is where we started and ended the conversation, an element of bravery. Um, a bit wowed at this, your level of immediacy but we can all take something from that. Um, I love when you said, you know, give time where you can, give time if you can, but, and don't respect anything in turn. And I think that reflects your generosity. Uh, but what really shines through is your authenticity. And I can say categorically, you are not part of the cheese and wine crowd, which is a good thing. And for that, I forgive you for what you've done to make Call of Duty such a big thing, uh, even though my son is probably taking it uh, a, bit too, uh, a bit too far. But thank you for your time, Andrew. It's been wonderful to have you on. Uh, I know I speak on behalf of everyone to say thank you for your wisdom and insights. Um, uh, just uh, I'll let Andrew have the last sort of sign off, but just a flag for next week. We've got another fabulous guest, uh, Rod Bristow, who's president of the Pearson in the UK and overseeing their digital learning transformation. Uh, and he'll be taking us through his journey, how he started at Pearson and made his way all the way up through to the exec leadership board. So another, another classic coming next week. But um, in lieu of that, thank you again, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it and I hope others did too. Go back to bed now. <laughs> exactly. Well, good weekends all and, uh, and see you next week.